So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we're very excited to be joined by Andre Pagliarini. I hope I pronounced your name okay, Andre. But uh, Andre is a, uh, a visiting assistant professor, or was a visiting assistant professor of modern Latin American history at Brown in 2018-19, and will begin a lectureship at Dartmouth College this fall. He's currently preparing a book manuscript on 20th century Brazilian nationalism. Welcome to the show, Andre. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm grateful for the invitation. Well, we're excited. And um, by the way, just I, I saw I was looking at some of your work. I saw you're very excited about the Washington uh, Wizards. Why is that? Are you in D.C.? <laughs> so um, I grew up sort of uh, in between the United States and Brazil, most of my childhood in Brazil. But my mother, her father, my grandfather was a diplomat. So she grew up in the D.C. area. So my home uh, in the United States is Maryland, is, you know, suburban Maryland around D.C., Bethesda. So I'm a big Wizards fan. So that's, that, that's, where, that's where that comes from. A lot to be excited about right now. Yeah. So uh, let's, get to, let's get to Brazil. Um, I imagine a lot of our audience knows something about Jair Bolsonaro, but maybe we should start with, with Bolsonaro, who he is, and in a couple of maybe just two minutes max, what does an audience need to know about Bolsonaro? He's a uh, retired army captain who comes out of really local city level politics uh, in Rio de Janeiro. And he served in Congress for almost 30 years, you know, without too much distinction. He, you know, he wasn't this master legislator. What really set him apart was his sort of incendiary right-wing homophobic, misogynistic views that for many years put him at sort of the far end of the spectrum. Nobody really paid attention to him until all of a sudden, this anti-systemic wave, which we, you know, we'll get into in a little bit, I'm sure, but that suddenly made him a front runner in 2018. Um, and I think the one thing to know, to understand about Bolsonaro is that within the larger backdrop of Brazilian history, he represents this current of authoritarian uh, militarism that Brazil does not have a great history of dealing with. From 1964 to 1985, the country had a viciously anti-left, anti-communist, anti-sort of progressive military dictatorship. And that's the generation that formed Bolsonaro when he was in the army. This idea that communism is a threat, that it needs to be put down by force. And the country, even with the return of democracy, has only dealt with that authoritarian past sort of incompletely at best. And I think Bolsonaro incarnates this tendency to look back at the dictatorship, which persecuted and killed, you know, thousands, and looks at that history and says, it wasn't that bad, that the left, you know, mischaracterizes that history, that in fact, the dictatorship had a lot of positive aspects. So I think that's this sort of unresolved uh, nature of military rule and its history is what produced Bolsonaro and it informs his worldview. It's interesting because I'm very much an outsider and my, my image of Brazil was just, I mean, I came of age in, I was, I guess I was 20 years old when, when Lula was first elected, but my image of Brazil is very much a, was a, a vibrant democracy, really strong economy. And, and it was led by, you know, first Lula and then, and then Dilma. So two center left politicians who seemed to be highly successful. 
And then seemingly out of nowhere in 2014, there is this aggressive anti-corruption campaign, which seems to come for everybody, but particularly the, the PT, the Workers' Party on the left. And by 2016, Dilma has been impeached. There's, you know, some people call it a coup. So it's interesting because your, your narrative of Brazil is one that, you know, they, they, the country's long struggled with dictatorship and authoritarianism. And my view was very much, it was very rosy. It was like, okay, Brazil's the, you know, Brazil's the country of the future. And, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a democracy. So I'm wondering, you know, do I have it wrong? Yeah, this is exactly why I love talking about Brazil, teaching about Brazil, uh, you know, in the United States or, uh, in particular, because it's such a large country, uh, you know, and it contains multitudes. So everything that, that, that you're describing is partly true. I mean, in recent decades, Brazil was a model for how a major country, a major multi-ethnic democracy that is among the most unequal countries in the world in terms of economic distribution, how a country like that can mitigate the, those inequalities, how it can move to you know, include more people into de uh, Brazilian democracy, to give them opportunities, to give them, you know, food on the table and all this, all of this stuff. That is a true story over the past, you know, maybe 20 years or so. But there's another component to that, which is, has always lurked there beneath the surface and has always been a part of Brazilian history, which is an intense aversion to any kind of democratization, expansion of democracy, of economic opportunity for the vast majority of the country, which is poor, working class, uh, black, brown, you know, mixed race. So there's these two tendencies that coexist, greater inclusion and greater democracy and, you know, exclusion, oligarchy. And these tendencies have, have you know, it seemed like since the return of democracy in 1985, this story of progress on the march that especially with Lula, you know, he's the first working class president that Brazil ever had. It looked like the demons of the past had been sort of locked away. Um, and then, as you noted, there's this incredible turnaround about, oh, let's see, what year? We're in 2021, about seven years ago uh, or so. All of a sudden, things radically changed. And since then, it's become clear that a lot of the gains that analysts assumed were in place were not so solid. And I just want to say, you know, Brazil is exceptional in a lot of ways, but a lot of the questions you're raising, I think, can also be asked about places like, the, you know, the United States, where, yeah. you know, you go from electing someone like Barack Obama, who sort of epitomizes this story of progress, of racial progress, racial equality, and all of that, to electing literally right after him, right? Someone who represents, in many ways, the exact opposite. And so it's these kind of ambiguities, these, the possibility for such surprise that I think makes Brazil so interesting uh, uh, to, to, to study. So maybe you could start with, with Operation Car Wash. What was it and where does it come from and, and why do we get Operation Car Wash when we do? Right, so Operation Car Wash, Car Wash was an investigation into kickbacks and money laundering, basically using Brazil's national oil company, Petrobras, as a piggy bank for various political parties and politicians. And it's the sort of thing that, you know, insiders, journalists, people who kind of pay attention to Brazilian politics, this sort of thing happens, right? It ha it's, it's sort of, it's endemic uh, to the way politics is done in Brazil. You know, it's very much, there's very much an insular 
political class whose families, you know, it's, it's very common, even more so than the United States, for example, for senators, governors to elect their sons and then their grandsons. And so this insularity breeds a kind of coziness between the private sector and the government. And so what was different about car wash is that at least the sort of the narrative that emerged around it is that it was the first time the state was cracking down on these practices, that it was gonna end corruption as it had been carried out in Brazil for decades. And so primarily, as you mentioned at the beginning, it targets the workers party uh, uh, more than any others. In part, there's a logic to that. At that point, the workers party had won several elections in a row. It's at the top of federal power. Looking objectively, it would make sense that any investigation might, you know, it might focus on the party that had the most power. But over the course of this several, you know, several months and then years, it becomes apparent that the scale of the corruption that investigators and prosecutors are unearthing, it could not possibly be limited to one party's exercise. It's not, it's not a partisan issue, the corruption that's being uh, revealed. It's a systemic one. But in, in my view, the, where car wash became, you know, went off the rails was that it became instrumentalized. It became used by political forces opposed to the Workers' Party to say, aha, see, the Workers' Party is uniquely corrupt. They're uniquely to blame for all of these, uh, uh, all this money that's being, that's being taken away. And the minute that that happens, in my view, it loses whatever potential it might've had to change Brazilian politics, because it opens the door to someone like Bolsonaro who can say, I'm uh, not part of the system. I'm gonna change everything. I'm anti-corruption to just turn the page on the workers party and say, you know, that's it. Job is done. Corruption is over. Everything can go back to normal. When what we've seen is mm -hmm. the Bolsonaro administration intervening directly, for example, in uh, law enforcement at the state level to shield that's not corruption. You know, I, I don't know what is. And so, you know, the last thing I'll say for now about corruption, about Operation Car Wash, in my view, is that one of the, its legacies is to define corruption relatively narrowly. The, the, the narrative that dominated headlines and that dominated Brazilian politics beginning around 2014 was that corruption is money taken, you know, siphoned off from state enterprises. That's corruption. It's bad, it's what, it's what the PT does, throw them out. But there's all kinds of other instances, democratic fragility, of institutional fragility, that also, in my view, falls under the umbrella of corruption. It's corrupt to try to name somebody or fire somebody because they're not gonna protect your child from wrongdoing, for example. Um, and so I think that there's a level of complexity to this question that car wash swept under the rug rather than allows us to, um, effectively engage with and that's a that's a complicated answer but but it's maybe i'll begin with that i'm interested in this question of corruption because i i see corruption everywhere here in the united states in our political system um you know lobbying is the is the obvious example Absolutely. Um, campaign contributions and so forth but we don't you know we don't really call it corruption what does corruption look like what does the systemic corruption look like in brazil today, during the PT, and I guess, you know, even going back to, to the beginning of democracy in the 80s. Yeah, so the irony about the way Operation Car Wash ended up unfolding, which as I said, you know, 
kind of targeted the PT as sort of the be all end all of this corruption is that the very legal mechanisms that allowed Operation Car Wash to function were put in place by Workers' Party administrations, namely the plea bargaining system that we've all seen in movies and television shows where you arrest somebody who's not the top of a criminal enterprise, but maybe, you know, middle tier, upper tier, and you say, we'll reduce your sentence for whatever crime we caught you doing in exchange for information about the higher ups. That sort of thing had not really been routinely ever done in Brazil in the same way that, that it had been done in the United States. And so this judge, Sergio Moro, who um, becomes the head judge for cases stemming from Operation Car Wash, he's very much influenced by United States jurisprudence and the Italian example of cracking down on or organized crime there. Some say that it's not, the, the US influence is not just at the theoretical level, that there, uh, the FBI, you know, assisted and aided and, and, and it were actually untoward. But in any, in any, in any case, this hey, idea- Andre, can, I, can I just, sorry, can I stop you there? Because I, I have read that, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, that the, the, the Justice Department in the United States was interested in cracking down on particularly the corruption that involved Petrobras because the US, the business interest in the US very much wanted to get into the energy sector in Brazil and it would be helpful if you could if you could weaken Petrobras. Is that is that right? So I get I have this is a controversial point. I get into some debates with with some friends and other scholars about this because in terms of any kind of smoking gun or you know, hard evidence that that there was collusion or any kind of anything like that. I just don't think we have that yet. It's not to say that at some point in the future, you know, historians will, will look back just as they did with the 1964 coup and find Washington's fingerprints all over that. Um, the United States denied any involvement after the 1964, 1964 mm -hmm. coup until it became clear that, you know, they had engineered support and all this. So as of now, I think it's premature to, to, to come to any definitive conclusions, but certainly, I mean, as you noted, Justice, the Justice Department was advising uh, not just Brazil, several Latin American countries on anti-corruption methods. And there is a way you could, you know, you could argue that, that that's perfectly benign, that state building exercises uh, are, you know, yeah. have good long-term effects. But there is also, as you noted, the, this, this other motive, weakening a major, major Brazilian company like Petrobras, they, we, if they're weakened, it favors U.S. and other international oil conglomerates. Not to mention, and this goes back to, to, to the, the previous answer, not to mention Brazilian construction companies, which partner with Petrobras on large construction projects. This was uh, the key of, one of the keys of, of, of Operation Car Wash was these enormous construction conglomerates that would basically bribe officials in exchange for contracts. That's the heart of what Operation Car Wash was uh, uncovering. A vast scheme where, for example, uh, company X is going to build a refinery or whatever it is for Petrobras. And so they will, they will pay off these officials to get the contract. And then, uh, you know, that's how it worked. And what they discovered was that the, the system of doing this was so sophisticated that these construction companies had, you know, literal you know, sections of the company whose sole mission was dealing with kickbacks and bribes 
Um, and this spanned uh, national borders. I mean, you know, Peru has also been completely, you know, the, the, all of this as far as, you know, even Mexico. So these Brazilian conglomerates that were doing this were massive, you know, things like Odebrecht, uh, uh, Camargo Correa, major corporations that have been, in some cases, utterly destroyed by, by car wash. So there, there are some, you know, Brazilian nationalists and, and, and others on the left who say, you could have carried out an anti-corruption investigation like this without destroying these huge companies. And that the fact that Moro and others went after these companies, they see it as a sign of potentially, and I, I you know, one, it almost sounds like conspiracy theory, so I don't want to go down that road, but of deliberately weakening these major Brazilian enterprises for someone else's benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, so, and I, I'm sorry I interrupted you. You were, you were beginning to talk about, about Moro and, and, and what his agenda was and, and, and sort of what role he played right. in, in the investigation. Right, so, so the other lesson that Loro, uh, Moro uh, learned from his studies of the Italian case of the, uh, I think it's called the clean hands. I remember in English what, what the operation was called. Yeah, it, it, was, is the, it is the clean hands, yeah. Clean yeah. hands, right? Um, and part of that strategy that the Italian prosecutors uh, used to combat organized crime there um, in, the, in the 90s was to use the media as a tool, as a, as a weapon, in order to galvanize public support against corruption. Because traditionally in Brazil, and going back to your question about like, you know, how, it's, how sort of it's always worked, is that it was a sort of don't ask, don't tell, right? Everyone always knew that the line between public and private interests was very thin, that politicians got their kickbacks. Very famously, the former governor of Sao Paulo, Ademar de Barros in, 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 the, in the 20th century, basically openly said, you know, that he robs, but he gets things done. The, the, the idea of using the media to help sustain a narrative of sort of moral indignation, that this time things will be different. This time we will crack down and arrest wrongdoers um, at the top of the, of the political and economic hierarchy. So that's one thing that's really different about car wash is that it, it purported to be a watershed uh, moment. Now, even as it was unfolding, the prosecutors of Operation Car Watch received international praise on 60 Minutes and, 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 and Time Magazine and elsewhere that this was a new generation who were turning the page on a crooked, corrupt system. But there were others, you know, who on more, maybe the more progressive side who say, well, wait a minute, you know, this sounds like it could lead to a pretty dark place because if what the argument that is emerging here is that the entire political class is bad, that, you know, that the past 30 years since the return of democracy, that it's a story primarily of corruption, but then we have to be careful about not throwing, you know, the story of Brazilian democracy since the 1980s, as I mentioned, is also one of expanding democracy, of improvement, of people's lives getting better in material ways. It's not just a story of corruption. But by 2018, I think this is really a mainstream view among Brazilian voters, which is that, you know, since the return of democracy, since the military left power, it's just been one huge scam from the political class. And you know what? We're tired of that. We want someone who's nothing to do with this, who's talking about throwing it all away. And so this is why I argue, I've argued in, in several writings and elsewhere that I think one of the key legacies historically of Operation Car Wash will be Jair Bolsonaro, because it's unthinkable 
that someone like that could have been elected for all kinds of systemic reasons that we can get into without this major shakeup of the political system that Operation Car Wash uh, represented. I want to come back to Bolsonaro in, in just a second. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on following. And I think you've laid out sort of the, the picture pretty clearly. To what extent can Brazilian democracy exist without the sort of corruption, those kind of kickbacks that you were describing? And you, you started the conversation by saying they were endemic to the system and they were systemic. And I'm wondering to what extent did they make the system work? This reminds me of the debate in this country, in the United States, about pork barrel spending, right? That right. a lot of, you know, a lot of analysts, a lot of journalists and others will argue that things didn't, you know, looking back, it wasn't that bad that you could have legislators compromising and negotiating deals for to pass legislation in exchange for some money to go to, you know, Congressman Smith's district, and that these kind of things grease the wheel of, of democracy and give everyone an incentive to participate, to give, to compromise in ways that now we see this kind of standstill where there's no, there's no incentive to legislate, to bargain, to compromise. So that's one sort of storyline of, you know, what's happened in the, in the United States over the past few decades. And it's, a, it's when we think about Brazil, it's not, you know, I, it's far be it for me to defend the corruption, anything like that. And in fact, I think that's one of the, that's another one of the tricks that Operation Car Wash was able to do, which is if you criticize Operation Car Wash, well, then you must be in favor of corruption. And that's yeah. not, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's that's not the case. Uh, it's just that these are incredibly complex, you know, um, issues for, for, for years. The idea that uh, in Brazil, the idea that that the press, that the justice system would not hold corruption at an official level to account made a lot of things possible. I mean, uh, in the 1950s, President José Luno Kubitschek had this you know, dream of building Brasilia, a brand new capital in the interior of the country. And, you know, many histories of these major conglomerates that I mentioned that later were at the heart of the Operation Car Wash. They boomed, they exploded with the construction of Brasilia because they were the ones actually pouring the concrete and you know, putting up these, this, this, this huge new city with lavish government contracts. And that's often talked about as sort of the, the starting point for this modern age of corruption in, in, in Brazil. Now, could the city have been built without this model of kickbacks and, and corruption? It pro probably, but it's you know it's a it's the system as it was, and it was capable of doing of doing great things, um, and so I think the alternative. What we've seen in the years since Operation Car Wash, you know, has been, in my in, again in my opinion, a road to nowhere because we've sort of now have the the worst of both worlds, which which is um, an administration that insists well corruption's over, no more corruption even as it co continues to carry out all kinds of, you know, shady practices mm -hmm. without any of the benefit of, uh, of, of the kind of compromise and, and negotiation that, that, I, that I mentioned earlier. So I think we, we, Brazil is really at sort of the worst of both worlds. I don't know how, how, how one fixes that at this point because the system as it was is not going to come back. But I think it's just, 
this is the again the leg one of the legacies of Operation Car Wash is that it disrupted Brazilian politics. At the time, many argued for the best. This was a turning point, and I'm just not sure that the legacy is a good one. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because I think we should mention what happens before 2018. So you get Bolsonaro in 2018, but one of the reasons that he's elected is because Lula is unable to run against him. So what what does Operation Car Wash, what does Moro actually accomplish? Who goes to jail and how does it reconfigure? The right, so this is, this is key. So in 2016, as you mentioned, Dilma, President Dilma Rousseff, who was handpicked by Lula as a successor, is impeached. And given the sort of the zeitgeist, right, this idea of anti-corruption and that Brazil is turning a page, people often assume, especially some international observers, that she was impeached for corruption. That's not the case, right? Even her, Dilma personally is a woman of integrity and honor, and they never found accounts, you know, abroad like they did for other people, things like that. She's, you know, impeached for this kind of technical uh, maneuvering of the budget. Uh, that every one of her predecessors had done. Now, Dilma is removed and she says quite clearly, look, they, meaning, you know, the system or, or sort of, you know, the, this conservative anti-corruption drive, they didn't remove me just to hand power back to Lula in two years. They're coming for him too. And ultimately that's what happens. Lula gets charged with money laundering because he supposedly, and this is the official story, he supposedly accepted a condo apartment in this beach side, in this, in this beach town in the state of Sao Paulo, in Santos, which is, you know, it's not a glamorous, you know, it's not the Riviera. It's a no, kind of, I, I've been there before, it's not <laughs> the Riviera. So you can, yeah, you can, you know, firsthand. It's, you know, it's, it, it's not a bad place. It's, it's nice, but it's kind of depicted as this lush condo and look at this kickback from one of these major corporations that I mentioned in exchange for contracts during his presidency. So he's charged with money laundering and corruption and he is ultimately sentenced and serves over 500 days in jail. This removes him from the 2018 election. He names a successor sort of at the last minute who was his former education minister who loses in the runoff to Bolsonaro. Now, Lula had been leading in the polls um, and likely, possibly would have won um, if, if polls are to be believed in 2018. Lula is sentenced by Judge Sergio Moro, who oversees cases stemming from Operation Car Wash. A few months later, Bolsonaro is elected. He names Sergio Moro as his justice minister. Now, even if one totally buys the narrative that Moda was the sort of righteous crusader for, for anti-corruption and, and moralism in Brazilian politics, and you believe that he has the best intentions, you, it looks pretty bad, right? To have the judge who sentenced the man who was leading in the polls join the administration of the principal beneficiary of that decision. It looks like quid pro quo. Uh, you know, if mm -hmm. if Bolsonaro had offered, you know, a sack of cash to mm -hmm. to Sergio Moro for locking Lula up, we would that would be corruption. Well, Moro joins the administration with the kind of implicit promise that he'll be eventually be named to the Supreme Court. This is what I, this is what I mean when I say the definition of corruption gets kind of becomes too narrow because, in my view, that constitutes a kind of corruption. 
Right, but Andre, it seems to me pretty obvious that that's corruption. So I'm wondering, what's the response from the, you know, you spoke about the media before. How does the media respond to this quid pro quo? Ma major commentators and the, the kind of mainstream press in Brazil. And by the way, I should say the mainstream press in Brazil is overwhelmingly conservative. You know, it, it's if, if one, you can imagine a country where Washington Post, New York Times all have the editorial line of the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering about that. Why? So you're saying like Folia, for example, is not the New York Times. It's, it's more like the journal, the editorial page. In terms of its editorial line, yes, mm -hmm. yes. Why, why do you think that is? Why did that happen that there wasn't, that a, a liberal paper didn't, or a liberal press didn't emerge? Well, in part, it's because, uh, going back to the history I mentioned earlier, these papers were founded by families, very powerful families. Uh, many of them made their fortunes in coffee at the start of the 20th century uh, and, and other commodities. And they established these, these newspapers not as... Uh, broadsides for the expansion of democracy and all that, but for, you know, a kind of constrained oligarchic version of democracy. And many of them are still held by the same families, uh, you know, generations later. So they are papers that historically, and it, it's the major papers across the country, Uglobu is another one that comes out of this sort of oligarchic tradition. And I, I'm not even using that pejoratively. I just mean it, it just comes out of this very kind of mm -hmm. insular um, it's not like these are grassroots papers that start of the, out of the abolitionist tradition, for example, in the United States. They're by these major families that are concerned about the ex, you know, export markets, that are very concerned about what other countries, the United States in particular, is saying about Brazil. Um, and so they glom on to Operation Car Wash as this opportunity to, you know, A, improve the country's image abroad, because it looks like Brazil is making, you know, fighting corruption and all of that, but more broadly, against what they perceive to be as radicalisms. And radicalism in Brazil is radical income redistribution, is land reform. These are radicalisms and the major papers are against that. So in that context, it makes it even more, it's even more incredible that the PT was able to win three elections. You know, to this day, there are some in the workers party who say that the, the single biggest mistake that they, you know, they wish they had done was a law to uh, change the way the press works in Brazil. And they didn't do it because accusations of sort of Bolivarianization, that the, this, mm -hmm. this is a Venezuelan mm -hmm. step. When the proposal that often floats around is basically to bring Brazilian media legislation in line with the United States. In the United States, a single conglomerate can't own in a one media market uh, what's called cross ownership. You can't own the television, the newspaper, and the radio. In Brazil, that happens all the time. Sort of more remote areas of the country. You mm -hmm. have a, a, a senator, for example, whose family owns the newspaper, the local radio station, the local affiliate of the major network. So they dominate the airwaves. Um, and so when the, if the PT says, well, maybe we should not do that. We should move in line with what the United States does in order to promote a more plural media landscape they're immediately tarnished as, oh, you know, Venezuela, Chavez. So that's why the PT never did it. But as you said, like it, it makes it very, very hard when you have this media landscape that's overwhelmingly conservative, some further to the right, some center right centrist arrayed against progressive forces. As you say, it makes it all the more impressive that, you know, Lula and the Orcas Party are able to break through that. Um, and in fact, that's something that Bolsonaro harnessed really well in 2018 too, because to the extent that the major papers 
supported him, it was sort of holding their nose that this is a guy, we'll give him a chance. Uh, but he was never, well, I shouldn't say never. He was not really the first choice of the major newspapers, but he kind of worked around them. I mean, you know, both some, if, if in the past, Lula and the Workers' Party met with success by organizing grassroots, going places and, you know, talking to people for years and years and years, Bolsonaro used social media um, really effectively to get around his uh, limited television time. Uh, because in Brazil, the way campaigns work is your party is allotted time on television, uh, television, you know, commercial time based on the size of your delegation to Congress. So in other words, major parties have lots of TV time. Small parties have very little TV time. So Bolsonaro had if I'm not mistaken, like less than a minute of TV time, whereas the PT would have seven minutes, eight minutes um, in which to campaign. And it didn't matter. These are the structural things that, you know, you never could have imagined a Bolsonaro being elected in the past because these are the things that won elections. And it didn't matter in 2018 because of social media and all that. And so, as you say, it makes the, the previous success of the Workers' Party um, all the more impressive, but it also raises going forward it shows how difficult um, the terrain is for progressive forces in Brazil, especially because the Bolsonaro administration and Bolsonaro himself really, you know, go after any journalist who go publishes critical, uh, you know, reporting about them and on a personal basis, he'll go after them. And, and so, uh, you know, it's raised alarm bells for international observers uh, concerned about the, you know, pl uh, pluralism in Brazil. Right. And, and I actually think this is a good time to talk about alternative media. So, and again, tell me if I have the story wrong, but Moro is no longer in the administration. He's no longer the minister of justice because the intercept in Brazil and, and Glenn Greenwald in particular uh, gets a kind of a, a bunch of, a bunch of text messages or WhatsApp messages, which reveals some dirty dealing within the Justice Department or maybe between um, Moro and the prosecutors. And this sort of it brings, brings the downfall of Moro. So is, is that the right story and, and what am I missing? Exactly. So through back channels and, 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 and kind of uh, other people in politics and journalism, this hacker gets in touch with Glenn Greenwald and the team at The Intercept and says, I have thousands of WhatsApp messages and emails between Moro the judge and the prosecutors in the Lava Jato cases. And what they, sh what they show is systemic collusion between the judge and the prosecution over dozens of cases. And this is enormously, uh, it's, a, it's, it's an earthquake in, in, in Brazil because it shows that the judge was not impartial validating, vindicating many of the things that, that progressives had been saying that about, about uh, Sergio Moro's behavior, namely that he had it out for Lula. He had a, you know, he wanted to sort of make a career for himself, make a name for himself by saying he was able to secure the imprisonment of a former president. And what the messages reveal is that Moro was sort of coaching the prosecution on fruitful lines of questioning. He, at one point, advises the team not to look into former president Fernando Henrique Cardoso, the president before Lula, because he is an ally of the anti-corruption movement. 
And so it's really black and white, uh, you know, what's going on. The people who support Modal or the anti-Bolsonaro, you know, the, the pro-Bolsonaro people or the anti-Lula people basically say, it's not a big deal, this is, this is overblown. They basically acknowledge that it's real, that the messages are real, but that, oh, it's no big deal, it happens all the time. And so one of the things that I've said about this is that it's, it's really interesting. Before those messages are leaked, the Lava Jato, uh, uh, Operation Car Wash people and Moro are saying, no, 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 Lula and the others who, other politicians caught up in, in car wash are being treated just like any other citizen. They're receiving due process just like anybody else would. This is by the book. Once the messages are revealed, the narrative kind of shifts and they say, well, of course we had to go take these extraordinary measures. Otherwise we would never lock up someone like this. <laughs> that, the, that the you know inertia of the system demanded these kind of drastic work workarounds. And so it was really kind of abrupt, abrupt shift. Now, so that's, that's one thing. Moro sort of separately from that is with Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro, you know, comes out in defense of his minister of justice, Moro, and says, no, no, this is all, it's fine. I, I have his back. But then Bolsonaro attempts to change the head of the Brazilian federal police, basically the FBI, in the state of Rio, because Bolsonaro's son, a senator, has all kinds of really serious legal charges against him there. And he wanted someone close, an ally, overseeing those investigations. Moro says, no, 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 no. That is undue interference. We can't have the president changing you know, these, these, these figures because it suits him. They have a falling out. Moro quits the administration. And as I've argued, the intercept revelations even though they're dismissed by, by many uh, prominent voices in Brazil, make it so that when they have this falling out, Bolsonaro and Moro, there just isn't enough of a constituency anymore for, for Moro. There's no, you know, people aren't really willing to say, he's our guy, we still love him for everything he did. He just kind of, he kind of fades because, you know, Bolsonaro is elected. The PT is gone. The PT is gone. The Workers' Party is gone. There's no more of this the momentum of the anti-corruption uh, crusade is over, it's faded. And so Moro accepts a lucrative offer uh, in the private sector in the United States and leaves the country. It, it, you know, here's a guy who had ambitions to be a Supreme Court justice, maybe even president. And it looks like he's done in Brazilian politics uh, because of everything we've been talking about. Oh yeah, I mean, two, two summers ago, we were in Boston, I, I was by the Harvard tea station. And there were these like there were these Brazilians who were dressed up in in Superman costumes, but it was like super moral right, costumes. Exactly. And um, then I saw this really awful Netflix miniseries about Moro the hero, and it just seems so ridiculous looking back on it. But you know, I first found your work it was an article you wrote in Jacobin. It was a it was a book review of Greenwald's um, new book, and so I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the you know because I think in the United States now and I. I don't have any idea, but this is my own idea of it, that people see, many people see Greenwald as a kind of prickly, grumpy, argumentative journalist who did one big thing, and that was, that was the Snowden revelation. But your argument is, well, in Brazil, he's done something on a similar scale, right? That's exactly right. I, I think... Greenwald is a really interesting figure. In fact, before I get to Greenwald, I just wanted to say about that Netflix show you mentioned, 
to this day, many people agree to say anything about the intercept revelations because to my knowledge, he, had, he has never sort of reflected on what that says about this hero, Moru. Um, so, that's, so we're still kind of waiting uh, about that. Wait, can, um, I, can I go back to that? The guy yeah. who made that Netflix show, was he the same guy who did who did Elite Squad? That's right. Yep, Josep Padilla, and he he's sort of made a career for himself in the United States. He did a mm-hmm. RoboCop reboot. He he created Narcos for Netflix. So he's he's doing right. he's doing well. He, you know he 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 has a career. So is he? But is he is he kind of like is he is he real right wing or did he just was he just misled and kind of fell into the the moral hero worship stuff? I, I think I think the latter. I think he's a guy who has sort of good intentions, you know, he's worried about inequality and worried about corruption and, you know, all these things. And he saw car wash as millions of Brazilians did as a chance to change that. And so, you know, if I'm you know, trying to be totally fair because I have, you know, lots of family, you know, my, my, my dad is one of these people who said, we need something like this. We need something to shake it up and change everything. And so I think Pajilla, the director of that series, was one of these guys. He's not a rabid right winger. He did not support Bolsonaro to the contrary, you know. But I think he got swept up in this kind of sort of deification, this heroic uh, story about Moru that has just been shattered by the reality of, of what we now know. Uh, which brings us back to Greenwald. I mentioned, uh, you know, often that Greenwald in the United in, in in the realm of U.S. politics is often pointlessly contrarian, in my view. That he's just kind of picks these fights that to me don't lead anywhere just for the sake of I don't know maybe engagement I don't know what it is yeah in in Brazil though he is much more identified with progressive and left-wing causes he doesn't really it's really interesting actually he doesn't really step out of you know far out of line from the progressive camp as he does in, in the United States and so this is one of the tactics people used to dismiss the intercepts findings they said, well, of course, it's the intercept. It's it's Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald's husband, of course, is a congressman for the uh, left wing party, not the PT, not the Workers Party, but the Socialism and Liberty Party. So he's clearly identified with the left. But I don't, you know, those dismissals didn't really take because, again, even Moru and and those other prosecutors recognized that the messages were legitimate. So, in other words, you can try to say, well, it's it's it's, it's Greenwald, but the messages are real. So it's, you know, you have to take them for what they are. And so in my view, the intercept reporting, it's, you know, it's, Greenwald is the face of it, but he really, you know, he's, he put together a really good team um, in Brazil. That's a major, major story. It might not be at the same level as the Snowden revelations because Snowden was about the sort of global hegemon and, and all that that mm-hmm. revealed. But man, all the stuff that we've been talking about, this narrative, uh, that car wash represented a sea change in the way Brazilian politics was done, that the Workers' Party was uniquely corrupt, and here we are stamping that out, rooting it out. It's unthinkable. It's unimaginable how quickly that, that changed to the point where now Lula is once again leading in the polls. You know, Brazil right now doesn't really have a government, it seems like. You know, Bolsonaro doesn't, has nothing to say. There's no kind of driving agenda. I mean, in a, in a way, Operation Car Wash gave the opposition to the PT, to the Workers' Party, a unified narrative, even though they all had their own you know, involvement in corruption and they were involved with you know, other parties. They could say, no, no, no. They could all point together in one direction and say, it's the left, it's the Workers' Party. That's been disrupted. 
and I, I don't I don't think we can tell that story without the porting by the intercept of Greenwald and others. And so if people are interested in journalism and its real world impacts, I mentioned in the review that Greenwald talks in the book, he, he begins the book actually with a conversation with one of the Watergate reporters who says, look, you get one of these stories in your career. And so, you know, enjoy it. And Greenwald says he couldn't have imagined that he would have two of these really earth shattering revelations. Um, and in my view, it, it does reach that level because Brazil is a major country and it's not that easy to have these kind of enormous shifts so abruptly. And I think that's what happened um, with these revelations. Andre, this is the, the last question, um, but I know you're writing a book about Brazilian nationalism. And I, again, as an outsider, I've never, I've never quite understood what Brazilian nationalism is. When I've been there, you see people wearing the the flag everywhere. It's on the it's on the flip flops. It's on the the bikinis. It's it seems you know a very like a very nationalist country. And I can say that coming from a very nationalist country, I, the United States is very nationalist too. But the nationalism of Brazil feels a little bit different. It didn't it didn't feel always right wing. When I went back in 2018, this was the World Cup, and this was right before the election, and the flag waving felt different. It felt threatening. I'm wondering, you're the expert here, how has nationalism changed over the last couple of decades, over the last few years? Maybe it hasn't changed at all and I just mis misread what I was seeing. I like that question because it, you're getting at exactly the stuff that I explore in the book that I'm writing. Now it's, it's, it's been delayed because of COVID. I was supposed to you know, be in Brazil last year doing research, but the book is exactly about what you're describing. This idea of nationalist discourse being used in the service of a given agenda in one moment, in one moment, a progressive sort of, you know, expansion of democracy, this agenda, and then in the next moment, in defense of sort of authoritarianism and a very right-wing project. How does that work? How does that happen? So this is the book that I'm writing. It's a, it's a history of 20th century Brazil told through what it meant to be a nationalist at different moments. What does the nationalist mantle mean? What does it mean to call yourself that? What does it mean, you know, what makes a nationalist appeal work in one moment and another? Because I think in understanding the way that that changes over the 20th century, we understand a lot about the way uh, people's priorities change, their values. Everyone sort of wants to be a nationalist, but not everyone can convince others that X proposition is a nationalist one. And, and so I'm, I'm fascinated by, by, by what that means. What I would say is in 2013, 2014, millions of Brazilians took to the streets to protest for, well, for several things. But one of the things that emerges is this idea that the, the government, at that point, the Workers' Party had been in power for over a decade, isn't working for us, for the majority of the population, that services aren't good, that they're self-interested, they only care about their own interests, politicians do, and we need to sort of break that. And as you noted, when you were there, claiming the Brazilian flag or another equally potent nationalist symbol, the soccer jersey, the yellow jersey of the soccer, the national soccer team, they claim, the demonstrators claim that to say, we're not partisan, we're not part of any union or anything like that. 
we're just nationalists, we're Brazilian, you know, we're patriots who want our country to be better. As I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, though, there's a way in which this sort of anti-political strain that says all the politicians are bad, they're all the same, they're all corrupt, opens the door to something dangerous in my view, which is someone who has no interest in politics and pluralism in working with others and being generous with others. Um, so I think there's a very dark strain, dark strain in this movement that claims the flag and claims the soccer jersey to the point where most leftists have sort of given up. They won't wear the jersey because I said, no, 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 I'm not one of those people. You know, the, uh, uh, um, so it's become partisan in that way. And it's not the first time that that's happened. In the early 70s, at the height of the repression of the, the dictatorship, Brazil wins the World Cup. And I think it's the third, um, if, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. And the regime recognizes this as a propaganda bonanza. Right? They, they, they wrap themselves in the flag. They, they say, see, this country is working. We're winning soccer, gaining international, uh, international uh, prestige. Meanwhile, we're overseeing a country that's growing at home. Rah, rah, we are the legitimate nationalists. And I think that's sort of where the Bolsonaro coalition sees itself, which is that left-wing parties are looking to subvert Brazilian morals. They want to be more like Cuba, more like Venezuela, more like China. We, this conservative coalition, you know, that would argue are conservative, like most Brazilians. We are you know, against corruption, like most Brazilians. So in other words, aligning their agenda with what it means to be a nationalist. And so I think what we're seeing in Brazil right now is potentially another turning point. Bolsonaro's handling of the pandemic and of Amazonian deforestation have been so calamitous, so disastrous, that I think he is losing his grip on the nationalist mantle, right? Because it's getting to a point where that's not his Bolsonarismo, Bolsonaro, you know, Bolsonaro's political agenda is not delivering for anybody anymore, right? It's not delivering international acclaim, much to the contrary. Um, and so I think looking ahead to the election next year, it's going to be really interesting to watch who can make this argument that. I am the one who can raise Brazil's stature in the world, who can get international recognition back, who can move away from the pariah status that Brazil, frankly, now, now holds. That, I think, will be the major struggle between the forces of progress and conservatism in Brazil um, next year.